Welcome to Under the Radar, a show about independent iOS app development. I'm Marco Arment. And I'm David Smith. Under the Radar is never longer than 30 minutes, so let's get started. So today we wanted to unpack uh, the situation that occurred, I guess it was the end of, or beginning of this week, end of last week, something like that, uh, where Parse, uh, a fairly widely used platform for uh, app backends, announced that they will be shutting down. And the while the actual situation and the nuances of that aren't particularly um, like generally ac- applicable or interesting, the actual sort of the fundamentals of that of having this big uh, general purpose flat platform that was used by lots of apps finally shutting or deciding it was going to shut down has a lot of knock on effects that are probably worth unpacking. Uh, but before we dive into that, it probably makes sense to just sort of talk about what Parse was. And so Parse was this platform that made. And relatively easy to make a backend for your application that would do uh, object persistence, user management, things like that. Like a very basic, high-level, like non-specific to a particular industry backend sort of system that a lot of apps could use. And it had fairly attractive pricing and including a free tier, which is always a bit of a trap for these kinds of things where you can say, oh, we can use it for free. And if our app gets really successful, then we only then will we have to pay. Um, and eventually, a couple of years ago, it was bought by Facebook, which made everyone who was using it kind of happy because, oh, now it's not this sort of fly-by-night thing. It's backed by, you know, this major co- corporation. Um, but now it's sh- being shut down. Uh, Facebook has decided that that's not something that they want to invest in and continue to maintain. And so a year from now, um, they are going to be turning it off. Um, they're doing it pretty well, like they're giving a year's notice and a bunch of migration tools. But at the end of the day, this thing that... Um, I've heard varying reports, but you know, at least I'll, I think it's, it's fair to say a quite a lot of apps make use of at least in part is just going to be turned off, and as a result, the apps that use it, if they haven't been updated or migrated, are just going to stop working, and that's kind of tricky. Yeah, and I think one one of the weird things about this is like you know, kind of ties back to app economics where. In order for these apps to continue working, it has to be worth their developers' time, and the, and their developers have to have the budget to now do a a noticeable update. And you know they they've they've made it relatively easy. They've released big parts of their service as open source that you could just install on any server. Uh, Microsoft Azure has has started trying to attract people to, to migrate to them, and they're they're making it a little bit easier. Um, so like there are migration options here that aren't going to be incredibly work heavy, but it is still work. You have to still do an update. There are going to be things you have to change and rewrite. Uh, and so it has to be worth that happening by the, by the app's developers. Um, so if you're relying on an app that uses this that hasn't been updated in a long time, that might never be updated for this. It might never be worth somebody's time to update it. And that's unfortunate, and that that is going to cause a lot of problems in the app store as these apps just kind of slowly, you know, collect one star reviews and stop working, and and they just kind of live as zombies forever. Yeah, and so as as developers, when I see something like this, like I said, like the the specifics of the par situation are sort of in, vaguely in, or like intellectually interesting, but aren't actually practically that interesting, but. What it makes me think about is it makes me evaluate the dependencies that I have uh, in my own apps. And as I build apps and increasingly, uh, fewer and fewer of the things that I build have no web component whatsoever. Because um, it, feels, it seems like these days, like you, you're going to need some kind of backend for your application, um, either something like Parse or you know, that, that's sort of like off the shelf or something you build yourself. 
Um, and you're probably going to need these for at least one of three reasons. Like you're going to need some kind of, your app's probably going to do something backup related where people are, if there are people are putting any amount of data into your application, they're probably going to want uh, to ba- be able to have it backed up. Um, and this is something that for a long time I used to say, oh, I rely on like the iTunes iCloud backup system. But that is all kinds of problems and issues that you'll run into where like I have a recipe manager and I ran into issues where like their recipes were fully backed up in like the latest backup that they did, but they accidentally deleted the app. And so now the only way they can get their recipes back is to do a full restore of an old backup onto their device, potentially destroying newly new, like newer data onto, you know, in other apps and things like it's a mess. So you want to be able to back up your data. Um, or you want to be able to sync your data between different devices. So you'll need some kind of backend to do that. Um, or you just have an app that has like a core service. Like obviously, like I imagine in Overcast, um, you need a backend or at least you're like a lot of what you do wouldn't work if you didn't have some kind of backend to run for it. Oh, sure. I mean, you know, like, like there are podcast apps that don't use server side backends, like as intermediaries and just crawl feeds directly and everything. But that's not how I built mine, and and it affords me a bunch of advantages to have done it the way I do it. But now I have this big dependency on on my service. Yeah, and I think ultimately, like that's the right word. Like at the end of it, building these backends that are maybe like aren't always required, but are going to be required in a lot of cases. Like the biggest thing that I think this situation is instructive for is making us aware of the things that we're dependent on and that our apps are dependent on because we're always going to be dependent on something. It seems like there's no way to really say like, okay, I'm going to be completely independent because ultimately you're going to be like, I'm very reliant on Apple, for example, and iOS. Like if, if, if Apple announced, you know, um, tomorrow that, Hey, we've decided, you know, this iOS thing isn't really working out. Um, we're just going to turn it off. Like we're just going to stop making iPhones. I'm not saying that's likely, but if they did, <laughs> my apps would stop working. Like in the same way that if Parse decide, you know, going away meant that apps that relied on it go away. Like, uh, or maybe a more practical example for like for on the Apple side of things is if they decide like, you know what, CloudKit isn't working out. We're going to turn that off, or uh, those types of things. Or like, I rely on my hosting provider. I host all my all my Linux servers on Linode, and you know, if they decide they're going to go out of, or they go out of business or they decide they're not going to do the kind of hosting that i need anymore suddenly like i'm in a big bit of a bind and so like there's no way to avoid being dependent on, you're always dependent on something but like you can there's a lot of dependencies that you kind of have some choice in like do i want to be so wed to a particular platform or back end or system or do i want to be a bit more flexible and do you know usually it ends up like the more custom you make it and how much of it you control you're going to have more uh, like portability and be able to be like, you know, if this particular host goes away, I can just get another one. And you're going to be able to look at the trade-offs and make more choices than if you're just all in on one thing. That's when you start to get a little bit awkward. Yeah, and that's why like the the selection of of what you depend on uh, this this is why I'm usually very conservative with these. You know, obviously I try to minimize how many external services and companies and and things that I depend on. Uh, but you know, you're always going to be dependent on something, as you said. This is why I, I I always try to choose as conservatively as possible. So like, yeah, Apple could shut down the entire app store, and that would that would really be disruptive for us. But that's very unlikely. Like the apps the app store's continued success is is pretty important to Apple as well. So I've aligned my incentives with this now pretty old and pretty important thing to its parent company that like 
it is very unlikely that Apple's, Apple will do that and that will be a problem for me. Facebook shutting down Parse, this thing they bought, did not have that kind of luxury. Like if you were a Parse customer six months ago and you're like looking, evaluating this, this dependency, Facebook, it isn't that important to Facebook to keep this running. So that this, this was foreseeable that like this was a high risk of happening, that this company made this service, it got big, it got bought. The parent company didn't really depend on its continued operation for their core strategy. Uh, so this was always going to be a risk, right? Um, so, you know, if, if, Linode, Linode, however we're supposed to be pronouncing it, I say Linode, you say Linode, they say Linode. If, if, if that particular Linux VPS host uh, gets shut down, uh, well, that's unlikely because they're really big and they're, they've been around a while. But even if that happens, uh, migrating away from that is not that big of a problem because there are other Linux VPS hosts just like it. And, the, and if, if every Linux VPS host went away, you could get a Linux server somewhere that behaved very similarly. Uh, you know, if every Linux server provider went away, you could, at, as a last ditch, run one in your house. Like you shouldn't, but you could. Like in this, so like the the transition uh, options away from something are also very important. Like Parse shut down. They they did a decent thing here where they 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 open sourced a big part of their of their server um, and made it like installable on your own stuff. But what if they didn't do that? Lots of things shut down and never do that because they just either can't or won't or don't feel like it. Um, so, you know, if suppose suppose you depend on an Amazon web service for your business and Amazon shuts that down, most of the time that is very hard to replace because they are so custom and proprietary. Uh, you can't just kind of do your own thing. If you depend on any kind of like high level service like this, uh, then it is it is always a risk that the more like custom and proprietary and high level something is, the risk of it being hard to replace if it ever does go away uh, increases. Yeah. And I think, and that's ultimately probably like the enticement and why you, it's this weird tension that you find yourself in as you're developing a service or as you're thinking about a feature, you're saying like, if I do it with this high level con like construct that this company is providing, I can save myself a lot of time upfront because I'm not having to build that again. You know, I'm saying like, if, if there's this solution that they've come up with that like means that you know, user authentication is just like a thing that I can just sort of like plug into my app and it handles all the you know, secure password storing and email resets and all that kind of stuff. Like say there's a service that does that off the shelf, like that's, you know, days, weeks, months of time that you weren't spending building that thing, that instead you're just kind of more integrating directly into your application. And so like it's enticing um, and like you're getting this enticement at the benefit of that upfront time. Um, but it's sort of at the detriment of this this risk that you're increasing in your application. And maybe that makes sense. Like if you're just kind of prototyping something and throwing it out there or you aren't in a situation that's very time limited that you have to, you know, you, if you don't ship your app in a month, it's you're going to miss some kind of market window or opportunity that or like that's the only amount of like you just have that much money to make a run at it and you just kind of have to then great. Like it's, there's nothing bad about those types of things, but it's this weird tension that you're finding of like, because you're so locked in at that point, you're setting yourself up for difficulty down the road. Cause it's not necessarily like your, it's like short, short term benefit um, and like long-term pain because, you know, developing it yourself, there's also long-term pain. It's a different kind of pain, but 
Like you have to then be the one who's maintaining it or when security issues happen, you know, you have to be, you're the one going in and patching your web server or your, um, the Linux distribution you're installing on your servers or whatever. Like you're, you know, at some point there's always long-term challenges with these things, but the difficult, the difference is more one of you're totally locked in and at the whim of whatever that company is. And unless you're, their biggest customer, which for the kind of people who I imagine listen to a show like this, you're unlikely to be a service provider's made like biggest customer. You're just going to be kind of like rock, you know, sort of washed back and forth based on whatever makes sense for them. And that may or may not be something that, or a position that you find yourself in that you'd be comfortable with. This episode of Under the Radar is brought to you by Hover. Quite simply, Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names. When it comes to buying a domain name, Hover is the first place I check. Now, when you have an idea for a project, naming it can be difficult. When you finally get that name, you want to be able to quickly and easily get the domains that you need. Hover provides a simple, fast, and hassle-free method of buying domains. I don't want to be faced with a thousand screens and all these add-ons, high prices, all these like custom weird services that seem kind of like scams. I just want to get in, select what I need, buy it, and get on with my life and building my new idea. Hover makes this very, very easy. Their search is very nice. It suggests things for you if nothing's available. They can search all the TLDs, all the crazy new ones, um, in addition to all the nice old ones. Uh, and they have .com domains starting at just $12.99 a year. Uh, great prices on all the other ones as well. All of these include who is privacy for free with every Hover domain because they believe that you shouldn't have to pay extra for something like that. That's, you know, obviously you want to keep your private information private. They also have fantastic customer support. If you want to call them, they have a no hold, no wait, no transfer telephone support policy. When you call them, you talk to an actual human being, not a robot, not a menu. You don't have to say like, operator like those stupid speech menus it's a real human being you can just talk to directly they pick up the phone and if you do of course prefer the robots uh, they also have great support documents and support guides on their website for getting everything you need and you can email them as well if you'd like uh, and they also have a valley transfer service where they can take all the hassle out of switching from your current provider simply because they do it all for you you can just give them your login to your old provider and they will transfer names for you if you'd like uh, all that for free of course they have so much more great stuff. They have volume discounts. They have custom email addresses, storage and forwarding, and so much more stuff. Check it out today at Hover.com. Use code PERSPECTIVE at checkout. That is, once again, code PERSPECTIVE at checkout. And you will get 10% off your first purchase at Hover.com. And you will show your support for Under the Radar and all of Relay FM. Thank you very much to Hover for sponsoring this episode. So it seems like we should probably also dive now dive into kind of like what we do, how we approach this, because I think we both have found ourselves at the end of the like the thought process on how we should make backends for our service with the like, well, we're going to build them ourselves and we're going to build custom applications uh, running on, uh, you know, Linux VPSs that we use and probably worth saying why we kind of do that. I mean, to me, it's, it's you know, first of all, it's all about control for me. I'm a control freak, and I, I want to do everything myself, and I, wa- I, want, I want everything to be under my control because I don't want to have m- major parts of my roadmap dictated by a, a, f- a, a dumb change in my host that, oh, all of a sudden, this entire thing I depend on is shutting down, and i got to change that. Like, you know, Apple gives us enough of those things. We don't, you know, they with, like, new device releases and everything, but those are, you know, kind of an unavoidable part of working with Apple. But when it comes to running your services, you control a lot more of that and you can avoid those things. And so I, I love that part of it. Um, and for me, it's also it's also a lot about capability and, and cost, you know, low cost and, 
and uh, and just being able to do a lot. CloudKit is very appealing in a lot of ways. And if I was making a new app today, I would think very hard about how about whether I could just do it all in CloudKit and whether that would be the right move for me. But um, it is still limited in what it can do, what it can't do. Uh, and and so for me, like a, a website or a, like a regular Linux backend is the default for me. I know how to do it. It really isn't that hard, um, which we'll get into in a little bit. It really isn't that hard. And uh, it's, it is surprisingly capable for surprisingly little cost. Yeah, exactly. And I think the reasons are fairly similar for me. Like I like, I think the thing that I like most is being able to tailor the back end of my application to not necessarily the application, but it's tailored to the way that I think and the way that I solve problems and the way that I'm thinking about like the problems that are being solved in my app. So when I'm dealing with something like sync, like the generic term for like one of the hardest problems in computer science, <laughs> like I like that I can like, so I'm solving that problem in a way that makes sense to me that I'm not having to kind of shoehorn my application and the way I think about it into the model that a service provider provides. And they say like, well, you know, we handle conflict resolution using um, like last, last updated wins or something like that. And like, maybe that works, maybe it doesn't. And so when you build your app, build it yourself, like I actually understand it. Like I have to go, I've gone through and I've made the decisions um, at the various levels of like, well, I want this to work this way. I want this to work that way. And so then down the road, when I'm debugging something, I have a better understanding of how how I expect it to work. And when things go wrong, I have a sense of where they might be going wrong. Like, is this an app problem? Or is this a web service problem? And like, ultimately, it probably also just like makes my apps better and makes me a better programmer. Like having this breadth of experience that at this point, like I can build something all the way from like the UI and the application, the business logic inside of the application, and then all the way through to like the, you know, then the web service that's managing that information and a database at the back that's um, storing that information. Like having, being able to do all those things um, is just like good for me from a, uh, like a career and personal development perspective. Like I've learned to solve uh, more problems doing it this way. Um, that ultimately I think makes me a better developer. Like I write less, my, my apps are probably better because they're the kind of calls they're making. Like I know what the server is trying to do with those calls. And so you don't end up just like, well, this is like the naive, obvious solution. I'll just kind of throw all this data at the the server or I'll, Hey, let me just ask for all of it every, all the time. And because if the servers are overwhelmed, that's not my problem. Like those are things that ultimately probably make my apps better. And like you were saying, it is kind of crazy how inexpensive it is to do a lot of these things now. Like just with a, a lot of my things are just backed by like two or three, you know, VPSs that cost, I mean, like at a basic one, it's like $20 a month or Mm -hmm. something like that. $20, $40 a month. Like for a lot of my applications, I end up spending, you know, maybe it's a hundred dollars a month in, um, in servers. And that's really not too bad for, um, the kind of capability and the throughput and the number of users that you can support, um, even at just at that level. Oh yeah, I mean, even like the the twenty bucks a month server level uh, on a on a modern host like Linode or DigitalOcean, you can get so much for this for this money now. And it, when you're using boring old fast tools like 
MySQL or Postgres, and you're you have like a modern web language in front of it. You know, you have even in the old ones, PHP, Ruby. You know, like Python, um, or more more recently, you might have like Go. You know, these these are so fast. You can do so much. You can support so much usage. It's way more than you think. Because now, you know, you have these modern processors doing the virtualization. You have SSDs on almost all these hosts now. It is incredibly fast to do, and so like you you really can support a lot on very little hardware. Yeah, and I think ultimately that makes it a lot easier. Like it's, they're the hardest problems I've ever had to solve. Like the only time I kind of regretted doing backends myself is they were the early days of Feed Wrangler, my RSS syncing system, which, um, like I was doing stuff that, in retrospect, was really foolish and was just crushing my database. Like it was just my Postgres database was just constantly dying and falling over. And in retrospect, it was because I was being, you know, sort of, I'd made a few really bad assumptions up front, but even there, like, that's the only time I've ever really had to do any low level performance tuning of any of my applications. Otherwise, just out of the box, things are just fast and work and it's fine in a way that like it would be problematic if i you know if i really needed to be like a database administrator like a, a serious like you know dba whatever they call them these days like doing that kind of work but most of the times i just like install postgres with the defaults um you know tweak a few things how the way i like it and then it's fine and it just runs quickly enough for um you know that, that my users don't even really notice any kind of performance issues or problems yeah, I mean, like you might think if you if you haven't done this before, or if the last time you did this was like ten years ago, you might think that running servers requires lots of like low level tweaking and performance tuning and getting these right config variables to like exactly the right buffer size and everything. And you don't really need to do that anymore. It's very very rare for most people to need to get that that down into the nitty gritty stuff. It, it really is like as you said, like you can just install these things with the defaults. And usually you're fine. <laughs> like that's usually all you need to do because everything is just so good now. There's so much headroom. The software is very mature in a lot of these things, uh, and and the hardware is very mature too. So you really get a lot of with, with just the defaults now. And I think I think one thing that I was kind of looking forward to when we got got into this topic is you said you had a few little uh, pro tips for getting into this kind of administration because I think it is it can be a little bit intimidating to it's like you know like go and install linux even then you start to like well what version of linux what should i do how to get started and it's i remember it being a little intimidating but at least like what the fun thing is once you get going like there's tremendous resources um and you can just kind of get going and once you know it you know it because this stuff doesn't really change uh yeah basically like google is your friend you know not not the corporate structure but you know the search engine <laughs> stack overflow like all these things these are your friend because Lots of people have been running Linux servers for years. And the, the, as you said, the, the tools and the commands and what you need to do doesn't change very often. Uh, usually, Typically, you learn this stuff like once, and you have to learn something new maybe every two years. <laughs> like it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty stable. It doesn't change much. Uh, so number one tip I can give is to pick a very popular but somewhat conservative Linux distribution to do this with. Um, for years, I recommended CentOS, which was based on Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Um, I think today, I think Ubuntu might have more momentum behind it. Um, so I actually just I just managed my first uh, Ubuntu server um, recently, and it's it's things are a little bit different, but I was able to figure it out. Um, so between CentOS and Ubuntu, you can't really go wrong. Um, turn on auto updates. 
uh, for as much of the system software as it makes sense to do that for. Usually every major distro has a way to do this. It's very straightforward. Um, that will take care of most security problems for you. Um, if, if you basically are, are not an idiot, uh, which you're not, trust me, uh, you know, if you're not an idiot and if you leave things mostly at their defaults with the distro and what it comes with, modern Linux distros are very secure uh, by default because they know that that, that that matters. Like the defaults matter. So they've all adopted pretty conservative and pretty secure defaults for the most part. Um, keeping things updated automatically is very easy and, and things like that. Uh, on a other high level stuff, um, only run the software that you need to be running and they're all very good at letting you manage this um so like if you have a server that you have your website on don't also install like oh let me install ftp so i can like trade files with my friends like no just leave that off that's just a just a liability like, just don't do that you know install what you need to install and if you want to play around with different things you can create a second vps for like five or ten bucks a month and play around on that don't play around on your main servers run only what you need to be running on them um, take advantage of of the built-in isolation in linux machines especially with regard to networking um almost every uh service that you'll be running will have some kind of like listening port where you can say all right this database should listen on this interface on this port if you only have one server make this make the internal stuff listen on localhost so that you can't log in to mysql from outside like you shouldn't need to do that anyway you should be doing things on the server if you need you know management stuff lock that down if you have multiple servers use use private networking every host that's worth their salt supports private networking between your between your own machines so if you have multiple servers that need to talk to each other have them talk to each other only over private interfaces have things like mysql or memcache listen only on private or 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 local interfaces that helps a lot just make it don't don't rely on like keeping your password secure. Make it so that passwords don't even work from the outside. So that also applies to things like SSH when you're doing login, remote login. So disable root logins once you have a user set up. Have that user have pseudo access with the password. And then that user account that you're logging in as, say you're logging in as David, make that the only user that can log in via SSH and make that key authentication only. Disable password authentication in SSH. Um, this is very simple stuff to do. You can Google how, how to do it. So that right there, you have no way to log in with a password. Uh, you have to have the the encryption key to log in. That knocks out massive, you know, brute force possibilities and everything. That helps so so much. Uh, be- between that and private networking for private services, you really eliminate a lot of problems. Now, moving on slightly uh, to user data, collect as little user data as possible to get your job done, because. Worst case scenario, somebody hacks into your server. Worst case scenario, they take your database. What do they have? Think about it. When you're designing your, when you're designing your database, you're designing your service, what information do you really need from people and what can you get away with not having? If you don't need to get people's email addresses, don't get their email addresses. If you, like if you're taking passwords from people, hash those so that you, you know people aren't getting like just the MD5. Like for God's sake, don't do that. Like you know, use secure password hashing, like bcrypt on strong settings. Uh, there's lots of good practices for this. Lots of things to tell you how to do this. I've considered even for overcasts, like. I do have the email addresses for people because I figure, you know, I need to be able to, I have email addresses and I have hashed passwords with uh, strong bcrypt. But I'm like, I'm, I've been thinking recently, do I even need the email address? Could I, could I hash that too? Because then, then you have like, if you steal my database, you just have no email addresses. Like that would be amazing. And I was thinking like the only, if you hash the email address, so it works just like, just like the password basically, then you could still have logins. You could still have password resets. The only thing you really can't do is I can't like, email people randomly out of my database but i've never done that 
I've, I don't send a newsletter. I don't do like I don't do any of that stuff. So you know stuff like that. Think about just like what data you have, what you're collecting, and what you can afford not to collect. Um, simple security measures beyond that, you know, um, you should have database backups. You should also be encrypting those backups. Uh, there's built-in stuff. There's a crypt command. You can pipe tar through and everything like this, this really simple stuff on Unix to do all this very securely. Um, make sure though that you are testing these backups, make sure you can decrypt them. (laughs) So that's very important. Don't store the encryption key only on the server because then if that server gets wiped or gets lost or whatever, you've lost your data and your backup decryption key. That's no good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, one strategy i employ there is i write my database backups i copy them onto a write only s3 account so like the the account the credentials that are on the machines can only write to the bucket they can't read or delete from it so that way if somebody hacks into the machine they can't also go and delete all my backups Um, so i have a separate you know, separate credentials that I can that I can pull the backups off of there and restore that never live on my servers. Those those stay like with me and my personal documents. Those never live on the servers. Um, so you know, keep things as secure and separate as you can just by design like this. And uh, that's really about it for basic security stuff. Um, it really is not as hard as you think, and you don't have to do very much. You don't have to like constantly keep on top of your servers and be constantly babysitting them for the most part you set it up and it basically runs itself and if you set it up with sensible defaults using conservative software and some basic security settings like what i've said here uh you can be pretty much fine yeah exactly and i think that it's the kind of thing that if you can't do this kind of thing and if like if everything that marco just ran through like is complete gibberish to you like you should probably do something about that it's a good it's an important skill to be a developer to understand some of these basics these sort of like the fundamentals that run the internet like you should understand what this is and to you know sort of take control of that and you know like you said just get a five dollar like vps somewhere and start messing around and start seeing you know learning because that's how most people learn this stuff you just start doing it and you get better at it All right, we're out of time this week. Thanks for listening, everybody. And next week, we're going to go into a little more detail about our server setups, lessons we've learned, and how to minimize the workload. We'll see you next week. Bye.